The Word of God comes to us from the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll find that there in their worship folder. And I'll be reading from Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through 4, verse 6. This is the Word of God. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there, was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts." For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. One dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward And the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man who uh, should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. The word of God. God. Let's pray. Father, I can feel it in the room. These are sobering words from a very curious book. We ask, Lord, you will guide us to how we are to apply this, what it means. What does it mean in light of the whole book? We thank you that you are the God who can help us make sense of this and drive it home that we would find our need for a Savior. And it's in Christ's name we we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you you could feel it in the room. I was up here, and I could feel it. Uh, What do you think of those words? Aren't you glad you came to church? It's better to never been born. (laughs) It's good good stuff. Uh, We're going to find out how it can be good. Uh, Ecclesiastes is going to rock your world a bit. You're going to ask, what on earth is this doing in the Bible? Uh, How did it get here? Uh, What am I supposed to glean from it? 
And uh, it will, it, you're probably not listening and you're probably not reading it correctly if uh, you, you're not troubled uh, by it. Uh, that, I think, is one of the, uh, the purposes of it. Um, I don't know if Ecclesiastes is going to meet many felt needs. <laughs> uh, uh, and so uh, our writer, we believe, is Solomon, has finished this poem, famous poem in uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through one through eight. We looked at that last week. The book ends. Uh, there's a time to live and a time to die. <laughs> and uh, it's a beautiful poem, and it's the most popular, probably the most popular place in the Bible. Um, but today we're going to look at Solomon as he opens his eyes and says, well, where else can I find meaning? Where else can I find some meaning in, in, the, in the world? And so there's really four areas in, that we're going to look at in our text today. Um, and he's going to look for the idea of, uh, of justice. He's going to look for dignity, uh, relief, relief, and uh, for peace. Um, the first thing we want to be very careful with is that uh, Solomon is giving us his observations. He's giving us his viewpoint. And we, we want to pause and say this is all under the phrase, under the sun, so he's a, he's a king, he's experienced all kinds of pleasure and power. He's reflecting on his life, and he's looking out, and he's going, you know, I want to find out if, if my premise is true, that there's a lot of activity on the earth, but it's a lot of striving after wind. It's, it's just mere uh, effort that looks like breath, that doesn't last. He wants to find out, is there really something out here that's meaningful and worthwhile? To pursue, and it's interesting because he's already pursued so many things, and he's he's writing for the benefit of his audience, his original readers, and for us. And we're going to see today that there's a great danger in just our own observations. There's a great danger because we are stuck with our own reasoning and our own observations, and there's a great danger if we uh, would not live by God's revelation. That's a sermon in a sentence right there. Uh, there's a great danger in just coming to conclusion about life based upon your limited experience. This is actually how a lot of young adults are thinking today. They are uh, casting aside all previous uh, generations, wisdom from the past, uh, uh, whatever was explored and understood and wise, that's not it. I'm going to experience things on my own firsthand. Uh, I'll learn uh, about truth from my friends or whatever is truth out there. It's an experienced-based wisdom. That's really what's going on today. And, uh, boy, that is a, uh, a really a wearisome thing to reject uh, the wisdom from previous generations. Uh, and I've mentioned... Uh, when I do weddings, the, the basic confusion that everyone has because they're having to receive traditions from the past and no one knows what those are. They have a sense that they walk in the room, I think I'm supposed to be somewhere over here in the uh, groom and the bride and, the, and, and there's a, and they've, they've, in all their experimenting for novelty, there's a loss of what has uh, been received in previous generations. So the danger is, is Solomon is providing for us his observations under the sun, and we know, we know we have more revelation uh, than he does. And so we, what I'm doing up here is I'm going to reveal to you all my cards. I don't have any pastoral tricks up here. Here's what I'm doing. And, and you, you know uh, this is kind of how we preach here. 
and that is that we take the text, and if it's in the Old Testament, we're going to drive it through to the cross. Uh, that's, that, many of you are here because you want to you understand that and learn that and experience that. We're, so we're looking at this text, and I'm going to lay out for you that I'm watching to see how Jesus addresses uh, this limited human wisdom. And so here it is, verse 16. This is Solomon saying, look, uh, how about the courts? The courts have got to give me some meaning. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, that's the court system, uh, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Uh, And so Solomon is now seeing that uh, the the one place that uh, humans distinguish themselves from plant life is the courts. Equal justice under the, the law, we as Americans uh, enjoy that. And you would think that in the court system, even an ancient pagan kingdom, there's, you're going to go and you've been uh, defrauded, and, and you're going to have a chance to go to court, and of course reason is going to reign, and your case is going to be heard fairly, and, uh, and you're going to get justice. And, and Solomon is looking out at the court system, perhaps his own court system in his own kingdom, and he's like, he's like, man, this is really messed up. The one place where you'd think human flourishing has created something of lasting value, of reliable experience, and that would be of justice. And he says, no. He says, it is not happening. There is a brutal uh, inconsistency. It's really troubling. The highest place, the court system, uh, is failing. The innocent do not get their justice. Um, Remember, uh, Solomon is observing and watching and taking a look at at areas, and he's wanting to find lasting, lasting meaning. And in the place of uh, uh, where you could anticipate righteousness, he sees a brutality going on. Uh, It is not funny when someone is innocent and they do not get their just uh, case listened to, and, they, they, and they're not vindicated, and, and, and they're thrown in prison. And, and we know this actually is happening around the world. Uh, in our own court system, there are things that are outrageous that happen to people. And so it is a brutal uh, sort of dog-eat-dog world and it's not just the sort of, it's at the highest levels of human experience. Uh, a real picture, uh, a real picture is being uh, painted here for us of how difficult it is to live in this world. And so um, then he, uh, he, he looks at the idea of dignity. Look at verses 18 through 22. I said in my heart, and he's kind of, we're in on his own reflection here. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Now, that's a really enigmatic, that's a hard uh, uh, text to unpack, and I'll try my best here. For what happens, and here's his reasoning, that God is testing us, and I'll look at that. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. It's interesting, this is, this is right on the heels of his reflection about the court system, a brutal, beastly system. And then he's reflecting now on, you know what? Something's going on, and he says that God is testing us that we might see 
or perceive things this way, that there's really no difference between man and beast. That's actually here in Ecclesiastes. It says it in verse 19, uh, verse 18, that they themselves are beasts. And they all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. In other words, in the end, uh, a kingdom may come, it may flourish, it may do well, but it's, it's, all, it's filled with people who are dependent uh, for breath, like animals are dependent on for breath. In the end, nothing really lasts. All is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. And then he sort of reflects philosophically here, verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward? This is probably how people talked. And the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. In other words, he's saying, I haven't seen this. How do you know this? Uh, Who can say with certainty this is what happens? So I saw, and here's his conclusion. Here he is. So I saw there's nothing better than that a man rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Uh, who can bring him to see what will be after him? In other words, uh, you really don't know anything more than the present moment. And so if you can do two things, you can have work and enjoy it, you know what, you're doing all right. Well, um, pretty, pretty gr- uh, grim, isn't it? Very grim uh, assessment of life. First of all, there's this brutal court system, no justice. And then there's this general thought of, you know, we're... we're what distinguishes man from beast? We all die. And, uh, and, and it, what's interesting in verse 19 is that what happens? I would suggest that he, Solomon is saying, what chance happenings? In other words, what chance happenings to men and what chance happenings to animals are really the same? There's sort of a randomness to the universe. Um, okay, so... Uh, Everyone ends up in this big graveyard uh, called Earth. Now, we know this is a dangerous, uh, limited perspective. Uh, We know that the scriptures tell us much more than what Solomon is letting us know here. But there is truth in what he's saying in in this sense. And that is that we are all walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That is not just Psalm 23, David language. It is actually a very real thing that we must grapple with. Uh, And um, in uh, in other countries, we have a very sanitized way of uh, slaughtering animals. In other words, it's it's not something we see downtown Kailua. Uh, It's done far, far away. Uh, But in other countries, it's interesting. You go to the marketplace, and if you you point to a rooster, and he's alive, and you say... yeah, I'll take that one. You turn your back for a moment, or don't, and that rooster will be killed in front of you in certain marketplaces right there. And to watch a, 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 an animal die is a, is a shocking thing for us uh, Western Americans because we just don't see this. But Solomon is speaking about something that was regularly seen in his day, uh, Short life, people living short lives, and the slaughter and death of animals. And he's pressing us. He's essentially like a provocateur. He's saying, show me the difference between man and animals. And he's pressing us. I live in the real world. I live by empirical data. And why do we think that men are so different 
than animals. Now let's get back to this idea that God is testing us because he says that. He says that God is testing us, and uh, it's right here in uh, verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Uh, now, it's a, it's a difficult text to interpret, but I'm going to suggest, because the idea of testing actually is rooted in the word winnowing or sifting, like wheat and chaff. God is sifting interpretations of life, and he is watching to see who comes to this conclusion that there is no final dignity in man. And I'm going to suggest that's a test. Uh, we know that the Bible tells us that man is markedly different. Man is made in the image of God. Man is, by definition, uh, uh, breathed. Uh, it, God breathed life into us and that we are different than the animal kingdom. And so we know that we should hold on to the dignity of man. And uh, Solomon is pressing us, is this how you see the human race? How do you see yourself? What is your perception? What is the, the data that you're collecting, and what is it based upon? And at this point, we would say there are no chance happenings. There are no random things in the universe. And when you meet a man, you have never really met a mere mortal. You have met someone made in the image of God. So we bring to this text a greater uh, revelation. Solomon brings his sort of limited human reason and, uh, and is provoking us to say there is much more to the human experience. And man does have an advantage over the beast. So uh, we are being prodded by this uh, quest for uh, dignity. Um, so uh, let's pause for a moment and let's find uh, Christ entering into this brutal uh, assessment of man's uh, existence. When you think about this, um, Solomon is sending uh, a signal by his questions and his observations. He is sending a signal of, I want to find meaning, but I find no meaning. We would respond to say, and this is a cynics and a skeptics kind of uh, question, we would ask, who told you there was meaning to begin with? Uh, who told you there was something uh, worthwhile to begin with? Uh, Solomon is in a quest for meaning that, that transcends the moment. And his reason, his reason cannot help him. He, uh, we, in our day, are told more and more uh, about what reason does for us. Reason is not opposed to Christianity, but reason is now shaping uh, the way we think about life, modern life, postmodern life, the latest study, um, the latest government research, the latest uh, decision from the university. These are these are shaping how we are thinking, and it is largely all under the sun. Western uh, civilization is in its last gasp of, 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 of understanding uh, the Christian uh, worldview, if, if, you, if you would have it put that way. Um, I will always remember, this is a pre-conversion days, I w became a Christian when I was 19, uh, but at, 
when I was 18, I actually visited UC Berkeley in, uh, in California, uh, affectionately, affectionately, affectionately called Berserkly. And uh, I was there, a friend of mine went there after uh, high school, and he was in a pre-law uh, grad, uh, program. And so I attended a class with him. And uh, I thought it was quite remarkable that in this class, the professor was making a presentation on the basis of Western law and using the Ten Commandments. Uh, And so I'll always remember that I learned that the Ten Commandments are in Exodus 20. I didn't know that. And I learned it from a Berkeley professor. Uh, So uh, so here, the reason why I bring that up is that uh, if you do not have God's transcendent um, reason, God's transcendent law, God's transcendent uh, revelation, um, you, are, you have entered into a world of, of serious inhumanity and brutality. Because the only th- way that the government uh, or whoever is in power, uh, dictator, uh, whoever is in power can assert their will is through power. They have no uh, leverage by way of some transcendent truth uh, that is uniting the, the people. Uh, they only have the sheer uh, will to, to power. Uh, Christ entered this brutal world, uh, and, and he saw firsthand the injustice of the court system. Uh, he experienced the injustice of a religious court and a secular court, the Roman court. So when Solomon is lamenting, you know, there is just wickedness reigning, uh, we approach this and say, yes, and what did God do about that? And he sent his son, and his son was wrongly accused and uh, experienced injustice in order to deliver us from the tyranny of a broken world. Uh, It's interesting that tyrants in the Bible... Uh, are, are, are brutal. Uh, we have uh, examples, perhaps the Pharaoh in, in, in the Exodus account, in the, in the, in the murder of, uh, of the innocents of the, uh, the Israelite uh, children. Uh, Pharaoh, once someone has power in the Bible, uh, once someone has power, they use it in a tyrannical way. And once uh, a culture is uh, dislodged from a transcendent value relating to humanity, where human beings are made in the image of God, therefore, for instance, the the idea of rights, right, comes from a biblical uh, understanding of the the human being. Once we are disconnected from this, then uh, the ideology that takes over is, is consistently inhumane. Consistently, uh, human beings suffer as a result. There are two uh, Australian philosophers. Uh, I didn't know Australia had philosophers, but uh, two Australian philosophers have uh, written in a British medical journal just this last couple of weeks. They published uh, this idea that the fetus and a newborn are equivalent in their uh, lack of sense of their own life and aspiration. So you have a child that's born and a child that's unborn, and they have the same thing. They do not have uh, an understanding of, uh, of who they are. They don't know themselves. They have no sense of identity. 
And so they are proposing, and this is a serious uh, journal, the British Medical Journal, they have proposed what's called after-birth abortion. And their thought is this, as long as it's painless uh, and the baby is not harmed uh, by missing out on, on a life it cannot conceptualize. And uh, so only uh, university professors can rightly conceptualize life. And uh, they now become the standard. So this brutal, uh, brutal tyranny not only comes from the court system, but the brutal tyranny can come from uh, universities. Uh, it can actually come from r- religious groups. Jesus experienced that brutal tyranny. Uh, and so the many spheres of society, the, the sheer human reason, if it's shaped by just human reason alone, watch out. Jesus was brutalized by human courts. He received no justice, and yet God worked in order to bring about our freedom from these tyrannies through the life of his Son. And Jesus has come to set up a new government, and it is not based on tyranny, but is based upon the mercy of God. Christ gave his life for humans. Christ came with the revelation of God's mercy, and we were not left to mere human reason and observations. So Solomon has helped us. Solomon has said something that's hard for us to grasp or to agree with, perhaps, but he's pointed out that sheer human reason alone uh, is not enough to give man dignity. That's interesting now in verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Take a look at this next subject. The next subject is, is he's trying to find relief. And now look at the wickedness and where it goes. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Look at verse 1. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. So he's crying out for relief. He sees people in power, using their power to oppress other people. And then uh, he, he wants relief from the overall situation of life. And then he begins to reflect on the dead. Look at verse 2. And I thought the dead who, and I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And better than both is he who has not yet been, in other words, you haven't been born, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And then uh, one last thought. This sort of kind of comes out of nowhere. Then I saw that all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind relief. Well, relief is needed. This limited perspective has a very accurate view of what happens when people are put in power. Uh, we look upon the history of man and the brutality that man has uh, perpetrated against uh, his fellow man and is quite extraordinary. This last uh, century, the 1900s, was called the century of genocide, and uh, where power was assumed by an elite and uh, and oppression like the world has never seen before uh, began, whether it was the Russian Revolution, revolution or the killing fields of Pol Pot in Cambodia in the 1970s, 
Uh, we see the oppression of the apartheid in South Africa. Around the world, even in just, uh, just what, 10 years ago, Rwanda and the genocide that took place there. We think of uh, um, the Serbs and uh, the Croatian and all the, that conflict. And so people in power brutalize. So what does God do? He looks at these inhumane systems and he sends his son, the ultimate Lord of glory and power, and makes him an unknown, born in a small little place. And he comes to serve not through power, but through humility. And he uses his power to heal and to restore. The world has never seen something like this. Solomon describes people who have constructed their own world based upon their own whims, and they act like gods, and they grasp a godlike mastery over others. And then Solomon has this extraordinary lament, and I thought of the dead. And you think about it. You're, you're standing in those rice fields in, in Cambodia where just hundreds of thousands of people were killed, and your family's gone, and you think about your life, and you think about what your future is and what your future isn't now. And can you not reflect a bit with Solomon who said, I thought of the dead who, had already, uh, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. And then better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Well, Jesus came right after the sources of that evil. He came right after the human heart. He came right after the devil. And ultimately, he will conquer the world system in total. And he, and he alone, will provide relief for our souls. And then there's this uh, search for peace in verses 5 and 6. Uh, the fool, in response to this troubled world, that's what's going on. Now we have a mention of the fool. The fool folds his hands. That means he caves in. He, he says, man, this is too much. Uh, he sort of self-medicates. Uh, I'm going to go inside. I'm going to disengage. I'm going to fold my hands, and, and I'm going to, and, and, the, and the result is he's not going to take care of himself. He's not going to do anything. He's immobilized. And uh, Solomon puts it this way. He says he eats his own flesh. It means he's on a, a kind of suicidal mission. He's so intimidated and so, so disturbed by what he sees, he, uh, he just completely disengages. And so Toil and work, uh, verse 4, is motivated by envy. We have this brutal world system underway. It's extremely, extremely troublesome and, and dark, this picture. And then Solomon concludes this section, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. He comes back to the theme that he's been working on, and that is this. Live in the moment. And if you can have something special called quietness, don't underestimate it. Meaning, if you can turn away from the drivenness, if you can turn away from the toil and the, the endless desire for more, and if you can find quietness, consider yourself to be most wise. 
Don't turn to sloth, but turn to happiness in your work and find quietness. To be endlessly driven is real misery. Blaise Pascal said that the human condition is that we cannot sit in a room by ourselves and be at peace with ourselves. Augustine said that we are restless. And the human condition is described here in Solomon, Solomon's words. It's better to have quietness than two fistfuls of, of toil and fury. And so uh, our response to this, I, I, I want to uh, speak to your heart for a moment. Uh, these are brutal texts, aren't they? It's very difficult. It's difficult to preach. It's difficult to make sense of it. But I, I, I'm wondering just how okay we are with all this. Uh, it's a tough world, but we learn how to deal with it. We hear of atrocities in foreign lands, and it's sad. Uh, we know that people strive for power, and there's corruption in the world, but we try to make the best of it. We cope. We know that people are beast-like, and we try to avoid them. We watch our workaholism. And some of us get really down, and yeah, it's probably, it may have been better to not have been born. In other words, my question to you is, are you okay with this world? Are you bothered by how Solomon has described it? I mean, or is it just sort of a, well, you know, I've, I've figured out how to be happy. I'm okay. In other words, who in humanity is really moved by this. Yes, there are a few heroes that come along and try to correct injustice, but the vast majority of us are sort of get along, go along. We're not really that moved. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We know that the world is a dark place, but we make the best of it. Solomon has been our tour guide, and he's trying to say to us, I've tried everything, and you're in trouble. But we're not really moved. We're used to it. We're desensitized. And we're largely unmoved. And I want to suggest to you that we cannot distance ourselves from that animal-like quality of life that Solomon has described in other words, I want you to know that we are actually described as animals in the Bible. And if we can see our animal-like qualities, we can be rescued. Isaiah 53, verses, verses six, verse 6 and 10 puts it this way. All of us like sheep. Well, we've done something as sheep. We didn't act intelligently. We didn't work to uh, restore the world or to right wrongs. All of us, like sheep, have done what? We've gone astray. You see, I don't think we're ever going to be moved to change personally, to look to Christ, to uh, believe in, in, in the kingdom of God and move in, in the peace of the kingdom of God until we say, you know what? The brutality and the animal-like living that I see around me, 
the, the, the lack of, of, of human beings responding as image makers to, to the voice of God. I'm part of that. I'm a sheep who has willingly gone astray, and I liked it. I was happy. I made my life. I found peace. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's us today as we take the Lord's Supper. We have no passion to do anything about the situation we're in because we're busy going our own way. So the only one who was moved is our God. And he came and he sent his son. And here's what the agenda was. Verse, 10, verse 6 goes on and says, Then the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 10 says, this is Isaiah 53.10, It was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. If you think Solomon knows what it means to lament and to have sorrow, meet the ultimate and final Solomon, who is Jesus Christ, the truly innocent one who deserved nothing, not a single aspect of how he was treated, and he was willing to do that so that you and I would no longer live in fear, no longer walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but know the witness of the Holy Spirit in us who tells us that we are already seated in the heavenly realms. We are already with Christ. God has loved us, and he is the one who first moved. He came and moved in this world through his Son, and he was willing to come after sheep who were more than happy to go their own way. In light of this truth, we come to the Lord's table. We come as those sheep who have gone astray. We come rising out of this dark passage, knowing that it is Christ who gave his life to, for us, who suffered for us, that we would never ever fear the darkness, never be in the grip of Satan, and never know the horrors of hell. This is our God. Let's pray. And so we pray, our Heavenly Father, that we know that you have sent your Son who knew true oppression. He knew true suffering. We know that it's by your grace that you sent your Son and you had a plan to send him on a mission of mercy. And you came after sheep who were more than content to be where they were. Father, we thank you that you have reoriented our lives because of your mercy in Jesus Christ. Cause your people to live a new life, offering real hope to our friends and neighbors. Cause us to be moved as we have been delivered from this sorrowful world. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, we've heard the gospel. Now we want to hold it in our hands. To your endless glory, we give thanks. Amen. Amen. Well, let me ask those who are going to assist in.